Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dr. Scott Jensen Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Dr. Scott Jensen and Matt Dean. Thank you for joining us today. Um, you just want to give people a quick uh, introduction to who you are and what you've done in your life, kind of a short one, because we've given people the opportunity to do this and they've taken 10 minutes. So just do a short little introduction to who you are and uh, what you've done and, and why you're here. Thanks, Andy. I'm, uh, my name is Matt Dean. I'm a senior policy fellow with the Heartland Institute. And previous to that, I was in the Minnesota House for 14 years, and I served as the Health and Human Services chairman and also majority leader uh, during that time and uh, always have focused on health care as my primary issue, both before uh, uh, leaving the legislature and since. And so that's kind of my, my area of expertise and policy and and that's uh, what I hope to talk to uh, you folks a little bit about today. Great. That sounds good. Well, I know we can just jump right into it like we always do. I know there's been um, big conversations about antibodies versus the vaccine and what's going to be more um, effective against the new variant, which is Omicron, which is the only thing that we're hearing about all the time nowadays. So I'm going to just open that up for you to kind of talk about. And what, I mean, what do you think about this whole conversation of vaccines versus antibodies? And it seems like people aren't really talking about the antibodies. Well, I think as patients, they've gotten one word from the federal government and the state government, which is to get vaccinated, get revaccinated, get boosted, uh, mask, feel guilty, and uh, hate your neighbors uh, for whatever reason they say about uh, not doing so. So that's that's really the context of policy, and that's the wrong one, in my opinion. And uh, if you look at just in the last week, uh, the Biden administration cut off monoclonal antibodies to Florida. Uh, just overnight. Yeah. And so thousands of people were scheduled to go and get their treatment and they couldn't get there because the federal government decided uh, that that was not, uh, that's what they were going to stop doing. That was based on politics. And if you looked at the White House press secretary, she basically admitted it. Yeah. And uh, so we are really in the soup mm-hmm. uh, with politics taking over for medicine. And uh, that's, I think we're in real trouble. Yeah. And I know you bring the, some of the, the political side. Now, Scott, you're, you are a doctor. What, what would you say on the more, the, the doctor, what is your, the doctor's perspective on this, on this conversation? I probably have right now more than a thousand patients of mine that have had COVID. And so I've had a chance to have just a tremendous number of conversations that go from soup to nuts. And I'm astonished that within the context of the conversation going on, as Matt said, we're getting sort of one specific approach from the federal government and it's trickling down. And in Minnesota, we're getting it in sort of a double down fashion because Governor Walls seems to emulate everything that President Biden does. But for me, I've spent a career trying to have relationships with my patients so they would know that I would be there to advocate for them. And if they trust me to advocate for them, then they will trust me. But what we haven't had the conversation about is what can patients do when they get COVID in terms of trying to stay out of the hospital? They're given a binary choice, get better on your own or wait till you get so sick you're in the hospital. That binary choice is unacceptable to them. And we've never done that to patients before. Patients are also asking, what can I do before I get COVID to maybe strengthen my immune system? So we haven't had any public health announcements or, if you will, in-depth conversations from the CDC about vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, quercetin, even losing five pounds, even kicking up your exercise regimen four or five minutes a day. All of these things could help. But another big part of the discussion that hasn't taken place, Andy, is... 
what can you do to reliably figure out where your health picture is? In other words, if you take a PCR test, we know that if you take a PCR test within 90 days of being positive, it'll stay positive. That's why we're giving an exemption to anybody that if you had positive PCR test, you're good for the next 90 days, even though we don't really know that. If you have an antigen test, you have false positives and uh, false negatives. But why aren't we using something like antibody testing more? This is my antibody test right here. I got it two days ago. And it's $42 a test. I had two tests done because I wanted to know, do I have antibodies to the spike protein? And do I have antibodies to the nucleocapsid? The nucleocapsid is the, if you will, the cocoon that the virus sort of stays in. You can only get antibodies to the nucleocapsid if you've had the disease. You can get antibodies to the spike protein, whether you got vaccinated or had the disease. But the bottom line is... I've got spike protein antibodies at the level of 160. Anything over 13 is considered to be immune. So I've got a wonderful uh, spectrum of antibodies there. And I've also got antibodies to the nucleocapsid. That's why the uh, blood bank was so interested in having me donate plasma. But why aren't we letting patients know that we can do these tests for them? And then when they do those tests, we can give them that information and that can help them make an informed decision. What if they had antibodies that were there and there? And then three months later, they weren't there. They're gone. It might mean that they're could be a greater susceptibility to COVID again. Maybe that would enter into their decision as to what to do next. Maybe it would work for some of the public health announcements in terms of you should consider a vaccine. The bottom line, health freedom has to circle around informed consent. This is informing. This is information. And then consent means it's voluntary. We're just not cutting it. Well, I mean, why do you think nobody's talking about this? Because I think I've heard like pretty much no talk about the NABA antibody tests besides from you know a couple people like yourself but why is this not being talked about is it because is there money in the in the vaccines i mean like what's going on i'm i'm confused on it is it like is it solely political or this is what i got today from a very well-informed constituent and said if you are not immunized from a virus you are never vaccinated This was what the CDC came out with last September. They wanted to get this message out, and many people called it rubbish. But basically, they were changing the definition of a vaccine. They said, yes, the mRNA vaccines are vaccines, even though many people have argued that. Scholarly, scientific people have argued that. But the bottom line is this statement. If you are not immunized from a virus, you are never vaccinated, period. That flies in the face of so much of science. We've... We've looked at measles. If you were born before 1957, you were assumed to have measles and to have immunity. You don't have to demonstrate immunity to measles. You don't have to take a vaccine to measles if you were born before 1957. Over and over again throughout the history of modern medicine, we've recognized the fact that natural immunity is a powerful type of immunity and in many situations exceeds that which you can get with vaccines. The narrative is changing. Webster is changing the definition. CDC is changing the definition. It really does feel Orwellian. It seems like we're being re-educated and all that we thought we knew in the past is being redacted and new stuff is being put in place. Matt, with your experience as um, a leader in not just the Minnesota legislature, but across policy discussions across the nation, what are your thoughts on that? Well, informed consent was always a two-way street. 
you know, you you give information and then you receive uh, consent. That's a, it's a two-way street. Now it's it's basically uh, command repent because uh, what you're telling people is this is how it's going to be and you did something wrong because you're here uh, or your neighbor's bad. And that's really what rubs me, not as, a, as somebody who's not coming from the medical profession, but somebody who is uh, a great fan of the medicine as a profession and as an asset to our uh, public, uh, and also somebody who really um, has always admired the professionalism of our physicians in the in the United States, uh, but also in Minnesota in particular. It just really rubs me the wrong way, and it really it just it just makes me angry when I see. Um, physicians and groups representing physicians and hospitals basically towing the line be out of fear and that fear is really scary and you don't just see it in medicine you see it across professions uh, but people are afraid to speak up and and looking at your experience I, I understand why and uh, it's very rational for me for, to see for example the Mayo Clinic uh, uh, mandating vaccines because they're a afraid because all of their dollars are tied to federal decisions and state decisions. And I understand that that's that's rational, but it also makes me feel really bad because I've seen them in the past really take tough decisions to stand up for their physicians and nurses who uh, had um, issues of conscience uh, that they've they've backed them on before. And it was really disappointing to me. I'm a huge fan of Mayo Clinic and I've always been kicked around for being too much of a cheerleader. Uh, but um, that really kind of made me upset. I did a video actually complimenting Mayo for exactly what you just said, Matt. Early on, they had said, we're going to stand by our employees. This is what we're going to do. And they put out a policy statement that was very much based on science. And it seems like there's been a pivot point. But Andy, I think... As you mentioned, you may not be as ingrained into the world of healthcare policy and medicine, but you need to remember what Matt Dean just said. You heard it here first. He said, informed consent has been reshaped into a policy of command and repent. And when you think about that, I hadn't thought of it with those two words, but yeah, you are being commanded by public health, by doctors, and then you're told to repent. Repent for even asking the question. Repent for even doubting the, if you will, conventional narrative. Uh, Demat, that uh, that phrase, um, I, you deserve my appreciation for that because... That puts it in different perspective, command and repent. And this is so counter to health freedom and the idea of having the ability to have a conscientious exemption or having a religious exemption. Uh, we've never we've never been in the place we're at net today. And as Omicron is racing across the globe and we're already starting probably in, in the Midwest and in many parts of the country, we're on the downside of it. We're going to see that. And we've had these discussions about immunity and herd immunity and natural immunity versus vaccine immunity. And, and we see patients not being offered, not even being allowed to have their own antibody tested, even if they pay for it themselves. Patients want information. And when they get information, then they can provide a voluntary consent. They're t- sick and tired of being commanded by public health officials that clearly have a a perspective, uh, a narrative that they're pushing. And it is, it's been very frustrating for me, Matt, to watch 
uh, my medical profession be absolutely fractured and divided. Uh, we've not done this before. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask one more quick question about this before we shift into a different topic. Um, you, you talk, you're talking about the information and people need to have the information. And then earlier you talked about how they're just kind of redefining terms and concepts and things like that. And, and I've, I've, I've always wondered, and I kind of have my own opinions on this, but I want to open this up to either of you to, to answer what, like, how dangerous is it to start to like redefine these terms and concepts around like immunity or vaccines and all the, all these things, like everything's changing all the time. And you'd have a group of people that'd be like, well, we're learning new things. So we have to change the definitions, but it seems like some of these definitions have been the same for maybe hundreds of years. And then we just decided to change them now just for the sake of politics. So like how dangerous is it that we're trying, we're like shifting the actual language around the information. Like how can we give people information if, if we don't have the definitions to define, does that make any sense? Well, I think the the definition of what a vaccine is, I think uh, Scott was just kind of digging into that a little bit, but that's a big deal. If you say that it's it's an apple on Monday and it's an orange on Tuesday, uh, you know that's a big deal. And I'm I'm not sure exactly why they did that, but I have a feeling it has to do with the legislation and the executive orders that were put in place. But maybe you understand that a little better than I do. Well, Matt makes a really good point, and I think that if you look at the policy that he's been involved with in the legislature and then now as a policy expert, oftentimes we want to preserve some sort of a cooling off period so that we know we don't have just a knee-jerk reflex. If you go back two years when uh, the CDC changed the rules as to how they wanted death certificates done if it involved a COVID patient, one of the things that they did illegally was they never had that 60-day discussion period where the medical profession gets to weigh in. If we're going to have a policy change on a national level, there's frequently a statute or a recommendation or a rule in place that says, you got to give a 60-day response period. It's the same thing if we change the legislature, all of a sudden it goes from this party to this party. Does the new legislature get to change the names of all the buildings and the names of the lakes and things like that? You don't want to do that. Uh, When we name a building after someone who's served perhaps our country and then passed on, uh, we don't let all the names and all the airports get changed uh, for a period of time. There's a real danger in this. We're trying to rewrite history. And then when we do that, this revisionist history perspective it sort of takes over, and the the unintended consequence is that the trust is broken. We're seeing that a little bit even with this vaccine thing, where the vaccine push has been so hard on the command and repent that in my office, I'm seeing moms and dads who historically have said yes to all the routine vaccinations for children. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, they're saying, we're going to press pause. We're just uncomfortable with the whole discussion of vaccines. We thought previously that it was always, if you will, the science. And now we don't know anymore. So I really do think that there's a tremendous risk when we allow almost a casual revision or adjustment. I remember being struck by, on my phone, I use the Webster apps, um, the dictionary app a lot. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I remember going and reading about the definition, according to Webster, what a vaccine was. And then I remember reading it a year later, and it had totally changed. They now have a specific section in Webster under vaccines describing how mRNA vaccines are real vaccines. And 
I'm not having, I'm not going to take on that beef. I mean, I think we have different ways to vaccinate and a tetanus vaccine is different than a, a live virus vaccine like measles, mumps, or rubella, which is different than, if you will, the Sabin and the sock vaccines for polio. And now we have the mRNA vaccines. So I'm not going to quibble about that, but it offends me that in less than a year's time, we've had these historically stalwart resources like encyclopedias and Webster Dictionary. They're changing as fast as they need to. And someone's pushing that agenda. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm going to we're going to shift over to a different topic. I think the the word um, fraud has been thrown out all over the place, especially here in Minnesota lately. So, Matt, do you want to kind of talk to us about what's been going on here in Minnesota in terms of some some fraudulent activity? <laughs> Boy, in the last week, we heard uh, over $240 million, million dollars, Mm -hmm. was given to an organization to feed kids food. Mm -hmm. And the FBI raided uh, the offices of this organization. And the reports coming out, at least initially, and it's not just yesterday, this is several days ago, uh, almost a week, Mm -hmm. uh, no arrests, um, no convictions. Uh, they have $244 million spent on lunches for kids. Uh, but they said there was virtually no food provided to children. So how do you give $244 million to a group over a year without saying, you know, did you buy a jar of peanut butter? Did you get some juice boxes? Uh, where's your receipts uh, for some bologna sandwiches around here, you know, before we give you some more money? Uh, it absolutely frosts me, but it doesn't surprise me because we've seen the same thing in the city of Minneapolis and in Minnesota with millions and hundreds of millions of dollars going out and we don't know where they're going, but we see people getting rich. And in all of these instances, who pays the price? Mm. Poor kids. So you get the needy Mm -hmm. uh, getting in line in front, uh, the greedy taking the place of the needy. And every time. And so when we see that in the daycare fraud that we saw in Minneapolis, we saw that with PCAs, Mm -hmm. personal care attendants who were billing Medicaid for several hundred hours a day Mm -hmm. uh, for taking care of people. I don't think anyone's quite that efficient. Um, But uh, we we see this time and time again in Minnesota. And then there's a shrug of the shoulders and move on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this is really the tip of the iceberg um, on this one, uh, but they are all appear to be connected too. And it's, we have to stop being afraid to see what we see mm-hmm. and say something about it and say, you know what? We can't afford to do this anymore. We got kids that need some real help. Yeah. We can't just keep moving on from it over and over. I mean, Scott, do you have something to say about this? Well, I think a Venn diagram in our head might be useful. And just to refresh your memory, that's where you have circles or squares, and then you're looking for an intersection. So what's the common ground? Well, if we've got this circle up here of food fraud, and then over here, we've got a circle of daycare fraud, and if over here, we've got a circle of PCA fraud, down here, we've got one of healthcare fraud. Bottom line is all of those circles do converge in this area here, and actually, that's the state legislature. I mean, it's on them. And I think this is one of the problems. Our system is broken. And I think Matt Dean is absolutely correct. We see it. It's exposed. 
it runs its news cycle and people shrug. Mm-hmm. People need to be incensed. In Minnesota, we do not have a revenue problem. We are taxing our citizens at the highest level and in almost every category, but we have a spending problem. In Minnesota, the average welfare recipient receives over $30,000. All of the neighboring states around us, none of them get to 20000 This is a problem. What are you going to see? You get what you incentivize. Incentivize people to come to Minnesota because we have good entitlement and welfare programs. You're going to get that. What are we pushing away? We're telling people that are business leaders and company starters and job starters and entrepreneurs. Uh, We don't need you. If you want to go away, we'll accuse you of being greedy and good riddance. This is a huge part of Minnesota's problem right now. And it's a huge part of why I'm not very optimistic about our future unless we really straighten up. The bottom line is fraud in the public sector has an ability to just keep on going on because of the very nature of it. In the private sector, heads would roll. People would get fired. In the private sector, you're looking to, what is the mission of this program? Did it accomplish the mission? Was it under or over budget? Let's just take a quick look at the Southwest Light Rail. I've argued against that for years. I said, listen, it costs $150 million to build one mile of light rail. It only costs $5 million to build a two-way dedicated road for bus rapid transit. $5 million versus $150 million. The light rail got going because the federal government said, here, we'll entice you with this carrot. Here's a billion dollars. So we said, oh, well, I guess the state's going to pay a billion and the feds are going to pay a billion. Well, you know what? We're closing in on $3 billion because of the cost overruns. And it's not going to be done now when it was supposed to be done. It's not going to be done until 2027. Honestly, by the time the light rail is done, Andy, the technology is going to be antiquated. It's going to have parts of it that were built in 2021. It's going to be six years old in parts and already heaving before it ever starts. And the idea that we're going to pay half and the feds are paying half is totally fallacious. What we're going to see is that the feds threw a billion dollars of seed money into it, and we're going to be over $3 billion, and it's going to be a failed transit program. And what we could have done is rapid bus, could have had it in play in less than 24 months. This fraud is going on. And if people think that it's okay and they're just going to shrug their shoulders, I guess so be it. But I'll tell you, state government is broken. Well, what, what do you do? I mean, you talked about how Minnesota, you know, what you incentivize is what you get. And how can you kind of turn the ties or even or like flip the tables here in Minnesota if you become governor in making Minnesota into a state that people are coming to to start businesses and to, to you know, build corporations and to build livelihoods and give people jobs? I mean, what can you do about it? I pull Matt Dean out of his present employment situation, I say, you come down here to the Capitol and you you bear your claws and you dig into waste, fraud and abuse. And um, you're not going to be constrained by the governor of Minnesota. We want that ruthless inventory. What the devil's going on? And you tell them wherever your path leads you. Go down the rabbit hole if you think you need to. But somehow, when we're talking about, we have absolutely, excuse my language, but we have absolutely castrated our daycare program in Minnesota. We have just absolutely ruined it. And it's because of the state government. And we have daycares having no incentive to necessarily provide the services for which they get paid. The COVID-19 has demonstrated that in spades. We have families who are being told, your kid can't be here for two weeks because of this or that or possible exposure. And they have to pay the full boat. 
Our daycare program is broken and the government's responsible. Our food programs are, are fraudulent and the government's responsible. We need people that have the private sector experience as well as some awareness of the legislature and who left and said, you know what, I've served, I try to do my best, but I need to step away from it because it's broken. We need Matt Dean to get back in there and expose it. And then we need to hold people accountable and we have to have audits and we have to somehow get term limits because when legislators think that their biggest job is to be concerned about the next election, then you're not getting their best work in terms of what's Let in front of them. Let me just give you a specific example of why it actually does make the difference who the governor is. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. We had a program to, to monitor fraud mm-hmm. in our state programs. We had an ex-police officer investigator who was, his job was to go around and look at things, find fraud. People call, mm-hmm. they complain about fraud. Mm-hmm. He follows up on them. They found fraud in the daycare area mm-hmm. and they found a lot of fraud, massive fraud. Mm-hmm. And he was threatened and he was actually fired. And the other people who were also charged with the same thing were told, don't do your job. Mm-hmm. Their boss had to be sidelined because she was basically muzzling them and threatening them mm-hmm. uh, for doing their job for finding fraud. Mm-hmm. Now, you might think, well, is she in jail? Is she, uh, you know, did she have to pay uh you know, restitution to these people. Mm. No, she was uh, told to go home, collect her full paycheck, and she found another job within the administration. That's how it works. Okay. Mm. And when you see that, you see people who are uh, abusing the system. If you've got a daycare center for a hundred kids and it's a thousand bucks a month, a kid getting sent there and there are no children in this building, but Mm. the checks keep coming. That's a problem. Yeah. Okay. If there's no little footprints out in the snow of the daycare and there's no diapers in the trash can that's what detectives would refer to as a clue (laughs) that there may be something afoot here Um, they discovered that and they said well shrug you know um, there's going to be some leakage you know you're going to lose some money along the way but we're taking care of kids but actually it's not just fraud or it's not you know a problem with compliance Mm -hmm. it's when you when you've got people on health care who are dead or live in another state or you've got mm-hmm. kids on a daycare program that don't exist, mm-hmm. that's corruption. It's illegal. It's a crime. Mm-hmm. And when there's a lot of people doing it, it's organized crime. Mm-hmm. And in other parts of the country, they treat it that way. And we should, too. Yeah. And I think if you look at corruption, that may be what it is at the legislative level. But turning a blind eye. But if you look at the public trust in the legislature and the constituents and the voters and the citizens expecting that the legislature will do their job, that's the definition of an abusive relationship. The legislature is saying, you don't have the wherewithal to figure out what we're doing anyway. So we're going to pat you on the head and ignore you. That's honestly what's going on. If you look at what an abusive relationship looks like, it's where you're taking advantage of someone, you're beating them down. When there's not enough money to take care of the corruption, you go and take more. In so many ways, there is an abusive relationship between the people of Minnesota and the broken government. And Matt's used the word a couple of times, and I appreciate it. He's used the word shrug. 
man, I would, I would call from the top of the mountain to Minnesotans, please stop shrugging. We need you to step up, not today or not this week. We need you to be engaged citizens on an ongoing basis because if you aren't, this is just going to get worse. And Minnesota's on an unsustainable path, to be sure. Mm-hmm. Well, before we before we wrap up, I got to ask um, one more question. Um, well, I'll ask two more questions. One, one more topical question, then we'll do our last question. But um, conservatives have a difficult time winning elections in Minnesota. And what do you think are some of the hurdles to conservatives actually winning elections in, in Minnesota? It seems like it's a difficult thing to do. So what, what are your, what's your take? Well, in the legislature, in some areas, uh, we do pretty well. We do pretty well in the suburbs and the exurbs. I uh, get good candidates and run good, uh, run good elections. Statewide, we've really struggled. The last time that we've uh, endorsed a winning candidate was 2006. Uh, Tim Pawlenty, who also won endorsement in 2002. Um, and I compare the, the right and the left on this on statewide elections and governor in specific. Um, And if you look at how the Democrats do it, uh, it's kind of a horse race on both sides. Mm -hmm. Now, on the Republican side, they say, well, let's wait until all of the horses kind of round the last turn and they're heading for the home stretch. Mm -hmm. And then they'll say, well, let's get behind one of these horses here. And I like that gray number seven. And I'm going to go get behind gray number seven Mm -hmm. and uh, to show uh, not not to win. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then. If you look at it on the Democrat side, they look at it as a horse race, too. But they say, well, let's uh, first thing we need is a lot of green grass. And then we need some barns and we're going to get some fillies and we're going to get some, uh, you know, uh, some good breeders here that that come in and know these things. And we're going to get the best nutrition. We're going to get all these horses up and running Mm -hmm. and we're going to make sure that every single one of them is a good horse and they're well prepared and they're coming down the home stretch and they back every single one of them. Even the nags did in the background there. You know, they're going to say, well, you know, good job for you, too. That's the difference between the right and the left in terms of financing elections. They spend a lot more and they're much, much more uh, um, intentional about building an organization. And the other thing is you have to say we can win. Uh, you know, I loved uh, when P.J. Fleck came to the University of Minnesota. He said, I want to win Rose Bowl. Everybody laughed at him. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that because he said, I'm going to go win that thing. Mm-hmm. And he, that's how you get players. That's how you win. The first thing you do when you want to win is you can say, I can win and I'm going to win and I need your help. And uh, so that's that's another a big piece of that is just kind of the uh, Minnesota uh, aw shucks. Uh, you know, we're going to politely lose as as conservatives so that's that's that piece of it and i think those two together uh kind of form uh, a real uphill challenge the third one i hate to say it but i will say it because it needs to get said is uh voter integrity i hmm. uh, i think we've saw that in the last election and the you know there's absolute uh, problems in Minnesota with our elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need uh, have better voter integrity mm-hmm. in certain areas, but also all across the state. Uh, you know, if you need uh, to pr- produce a vaccine passport to mm-hmm. have a bowl and noodles in downtown Minneapolis, uh, you should probably be able to produce a license to vote and exercise mm-hmm. uh, your right 
um, as a Minnesotan and know that that vote is cast uh, legally and all the other ones are too. So those three things together, I think, are yeah. where we're at. Yeah, yeah and I think that there's... Um there's a certain perception problem with the Republican Party. I think there's still a fair amount of people who think that the Republican Party is a bunch of old, wealthy white guys. And I think that the Republican Party has been slow to embrace new issues. Without question, two critical issues for the Republican movement have always been and should be the protection of the unborn and the protection of our Second Amendment rights. And I'm there all the way. But I think... We say we want to go out and get voting blocks that haven't been with us because we know that if we have 30 to 35 percent of Minnesotans saying they're Republicans, you can't win an election then. So we say we want to go out and do better uh, with moms in the suburbs, but we ignore the concerns that they have. We say that we want to go get millennials and Gen Z's, but when they ask questions about consumer protections and corporate responsibility, we deflect those questions and tell them, oh, that's cute that you asked that question. We say we want to go to farmers and that we want them to vote with us, but we haven't done anything to help them keep the family farm in the family. We haven't gone to bat for them with these buffer zones that they're paying for. We haven't given them any relief in their property taxes. We frankly allowed the urban dwellers to get most of the money coming through the budget process. We say that we want to help labor and get good jobs, and yet we haven't been able to preserve their ability to do mining. We've seen that entire industry, if you will, sabotaged. We, we say that we want to go to, if you will, the seniors that maybe have typically voted liberal, and yet we don't put their agenda concerns at the top of the list. We're constantly referring back to maybe a couple of purity tests, but we need to start talking about the environment, consumer protection, corporate responsibility. How do we protect our children in the schools? How do we make sure that something like critical race theory never gets going again? How do we allow a parent a school district to have some recall ability if they think that their school board has gotten so far away from the values and the fabric of the community they're supposed to represent. These are things that we have to talk about, but we don't. And so as a Republican Party, we're seen as stagnant. We need to fall in love again with the Constitution. And the Constitution will be our playbook. It'll help us get to where we need to go. But the Republican Party right now, I think, oftentimes would do better if they presented themselves as the conservative party versus the Republican Party, because people are just not smitten with what's been going on. And we've got the 25 statewide losses in a row to show for it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that all makes sense. Um, I mean, we're going to wrap this thing up now. We do something every podcast called What's Good, Scott? So we do a podcast about a bunch of politics and all this stuff, but we need to hear some good news. Um, and so we, I'll say, what's good, Scott? And then afterwards, I'll do what's good, Matt. Um, but what's good, Scott? Well, I've always said that uh, other than the Bible, my favorite book is Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And today, uh, this is the first time I've had a podcast where our special guest used the word shrug several times. And I think that if anybody has any interest in reading Atlas Shrugged, what you'll see is that Atlas is the world. It's, if you will, the source of freedom and food and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if Atlas shrugs, like people might be shrugging, we're in some deep doo-doo. So Atlas Shrugged is one of my favorite books. I always ask people, who's John Galt? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> What's good, Matt? Well, Taggart Steel uh, is is very good, and I think we need uh, we need a lot of more of that in our policy, and I think uh, we need more of that. Uh, we need really people to dive in right now mm-hmm. when you're being told to just being patted on the head and said, thank you, uh, just get in line, uh, to really question things. And I think that yearning is out there, and I think what's going to be really good is, I think, uh, next election cycle, uh, when people come back, they're going to be a lot more informed than the government gives them credit for. And so that makes me very, very optimistic and hopeful and uh, and also thankful. I'm grateful as a Minnesota patient that you see patients, and uh, I'm also grateful as a voter that people are stepping up uh, and throwing their hat in the ring. Awesome. That's great. Well, well hold it. How about you? Anything good? Yeah. So a week ago from today that we're recording this, I got married. Um, so I'm a married man. Um, uh, best movie you'll ever make. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was great. The wedding was awesome. Everybody was there except for Scott. Um, but no problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a great wedding and my wife is here at the pie. So this, I mean, I'm excited about being married. Yeah. We moved into our new apartment. So yeah. truly you represent a young man who has outkicked his coverage. I've met your wife. <laughs> She's delightful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. Thanks so much for coming on our podcast. Really appreciate having this conversation with you. And thank you all for listening to this podcast. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, follow, send this to your friends, go to drscottjensen.com and find out more stuff about Dr. Scott Jensen. And we will see you guys all in the next one. Goodbye. Goodbye.